You are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, November 29th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. People whose homes have burned know what it's like to sift through ashes in search of family treasures. But what about the heartbreak of losing urns that house the cremated remains of loved ones? The California Report digs through the rubble with victims of the McKinney fire on the Oregon border. After regional news and weather, hydrologist Steve Baker has refreshingly good news about water, and Mark Cuniberti is here with a Money Matters commentary. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. State water leaders announced yesterday the drought vulnerability of urban water districts. KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero explains why only three suppliers are projecting inadequate water supplies. The districts are the city of Menlo Park, south of San Francisco, and two in Ventura County, serving Moore Park and Simi Valley. 73 others initially found they could be water scarce next year, but reported they would take action to avoid a lack of water. They might be fixing leaks. Arthur Hinojosa is the head of the Department of Water Resources, Division of Regional Assistance. Uh, There might be more restrictions on restaurant water usage, hotels doing less linen service. All these are actions that they will continue to take and then some. This is the first time California water officials have gathered a statewide water availability and scarcity assessment. Local districts will reevaluate water scarcity come spring. For the California Report, I'm Ezra David Romero. After wildfire season ends in the western U.S., those who lost their homes begin sifting through what's left. Jefferson Public Radio's Roman Battaglia visited the site of the McKinney Fire, where a team of trained dogs and archaeologists helped recover cremated remains left in urns that were lost in the fire. Turn. Piper, leave that. Lynn Engelbert is guiding her dog Piper around the site of a home that burned down during the McKinney fire this year, which devastated the small Klamath River community near the Oregon-California border. Today, she's at Valerie Linfoot's home, where a specially trained team of dogs and archaeologists are working together to find Linfoot's mother and grandmother. Their cremated remains were left behind when Linfoot had to evacuate. My husband was home. I wasn't home, so he had about 10 minutes. And so there was very little that he was able to grab our pets, our safe, and important papers. And um, he was able to get a few mementos that were near the safe. And that was about it. Linfoot's family members' urns were kept in her walk-in closet, now just a faint outline of where it used to be. My best guess would be about a third of the way in against this wall, but may have fell forward. So it's under this piece of metal. Engelbert and her team are part of the Alta Heritage Foundation. She says they started in 2017 when a survivor of the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa reached out to an archaeologist looking for help finding his parents' cremated remains in the rubble. The archaeologist connected them with Engelbert, who does work finding human remains with the Institute for Canine Forensics. One weekend on Saturday, I was working with the sheriff's office up there helping to look for victims with Piper. And they were finished with us that day, so I called this guy and I said, I can be at your house tomorrow morning. Piper found the cremains in about two minutes. And I recovered them using a tuna fish can into Ziploc bags. Since then, Engelbert says they've been out to over 300 homes. The recovery process happens in two steps, combining archaeology and canine forensics. 
Once the handlers take their dogs through the site to locate the general area of the remains, the archaeologists step in with shovels and dustpans to sift through the debris looking for the ashes. Chelsea Rose is one of the archaeologists on this trip. She rubs a small piece of drywall in her hands and it dissolves into a very fine powder. In addition to kind of this like salmon color that we see, there's, um, it's a lot grittier than like some of the other materials we're seeing, like drywall and stuff like that. After lifting some metal sheets and imagining where the ashes could have landed in the firestorm, the team gets some good luck. Oh yeah, that might That's be about it. Where they... Yeah. That's one of them, I think. Yeah, and here's the other one. Oh, yep. Oh, my yep. God. Oh, yep. my God. <laughs> there they are. The recovery process can be very emotional. Valerie Linfoot gets down close to the two small salmon-colored piles. I miss my mom so much. <laughs> I just couldn't bury her. <laughs> I wanted her with me. Yeah, she's looking. So then I felt really sad because I was the one that had the ashes, right? You know, I have two brothers and a sister. All the work that Engelbert and the others do is on their own dime. Engelbert says the cost of hotels, gas, and all the safety gear they need adds up. She says they've been working for five years trying to find a government agency that can support them. You know, we have massive pictures that we roll out on a desktop. And they look at that and they go, oh, that's heartrending. How sad. We'll see what we can do. And then that's the last you hear from it. The archaeologists are able to identify who's who based on what's left of their urns and the age of the remains. They start packing up the ashes into Ziploc bags. Oh, Grandma Vera. I'm so sorry you've had to have this huge journey. But you were an adventurer, and you would really understand this and appreciate the efforts of all these people. (laughs) The crew takes a short break before heading right next door to another recovery that day. The dogs are already excited for their next job. Now, when I was walking up to get the truck, I could hear one of them whining. That's normal, right? That they yeah, were that's kind of, drive. That's a, they, coach, they coach, I can do this. Put me put in. Me in. <laughs> <laughs> Engelbert says it can be devastating for families to imagine their loved one's remains getting sent to a toxic waste dump with the rest of the rubble. Even if they're ultimately unsuccessful, she says, this process helps families get some form of closure knowing they tried. For the California Report, I'm Roman Battaglia in Klamath River. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. The annual monarch butterfly count is underway in California, and the news is good so far. More than 100,000 western monarch butterflies have been counted as part of this year's Thanksgiving count. That's encouraging researchers who hope that the butterfly continues to rebound from 2020's dismal numbers. Emma Pelton is a conservation biologist with the Xerces Society, which leads the count. The numbers that year were just under 2,000. So we really saw what felt like a total collapse of the migration and a lot of concern that that was over. But last year, more than 250,000 Western monarchs were tallied at sites across the state and into Baja, California. Pelton says that so far, this year is on track to match, if not exceed, that number. 
And that's the California Report for Tuesday, November 29th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Turning to regional news, here are some questions that might have crossed your mind in the past year. Are oil companies exploiting Californians to rake in record profits? How can the state stop refineries from shutting down for maintenance? What's the key to preventing future gasoline price hikes? State regulators and legislators say they're trying to better understand what's driving California's high gas prices. So they need more information from the companies that produce and distribute the state's fuel. The California Energy Commission pursued answers to those questions at a meeting today. They heard opinions from industry analysts. But as reported in today's Sacramento Bee, the commission didn't get any help from the companies that produce 96% of the state's gasoline. Chevron, Marathon, PBF Energy, Phillips 66, and Valero All five companies declined to participate in the hearing. In letters to the commission, most said speaking publicly about their operations would force them to divulge trade secrets. PBF Energy added that it did not participate because Governor Gavin Newsom had politicized the issue and released misleading information on its earnings. According to its third-quarter financial report, the B says, PBF's profit jumped this year by nearly 1,700 percent. In a tweet on Monday, Governor Newsom called the oil companies pathetic. In the face of these profits, Newsom wrote, consumers paid record prices for fuel. Now, he said, these same companies refuse to explain why they are sticking consumers with the bill. Newsom is proposing a new tax on oil company earnings. Turning to the regional forecast from the National Weather Service, rain, snow, and cooler temperatures are expected to move into our region Wednesday night through the weekend with the possibility of heaviest precipitation on Thursday. The forecast for this evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, partly cloudy with a low around 33. Wednesday will be mostly sunny with a high near 50 and winds of 5 to 8 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 18 miles per hour. Wednesday night will be mostly cloudy with a low around 37 and south-southeast winds of 8 to 16 miles per hour, with gusts of up to 25 miles per hour. Expect a 50% chance of rain after 10 p.m. Wednesday, with new precipitation amounts of up to half an inch. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, this evening will be mostly cloudy with a low around 20. Wednesday will be mostly sunny with a high near 40, a low near 24, and winds of up to 15 miles per hour. Snow is likely Wednesday night after 4 a.m. with possible new snow accumulation of 1 to 3 inches. The National Weather Service has issued a winter storm watch from Wednesday evening through Friday morning for the greater Lake Tahoe area. Whiteout conditions are possible, with total snow accumulations of 10 to 26 inches. Winds could gust as high as 45 miles per hour to above 100 miles per hour along the Sierra Crest. Travel could be difficult to impossible, and strong winds could cause damage to trees and lead to power outages. The Sierra Avalanche Center in Truckee has issued a backcountry avalanche watch for Greater Lake Tahoe for Thursday morning to Friday morning. Tonight in Sacramento and Woodland will be partly cloudy, with a low around 35 and areas of frost. 
Wednesday will see widespread frost before 8 a.m., otherwise sunny with a high near 59. Rain is expected to move in Wednesday night with a low in the mid-40s and wind gusts up to 18 miles per hour. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. From atmospheric rivers to snowmageddons to epic drought, California has the most erratic weather in the lower 48 states. In today's Water News, hydrologist Steve Baker reports on how Yuba Water and other agencies are working together to use forecasting of these events to optimize reservoir operations in the Yuba and Feather River watersheds. Listen in as KVMR's Paul Emery talks to Steve about the project known as FIRO. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Directly related to water is wet weather, and it looks like it's moving into the area later this week. How much how much rain is actually expected at this point? Hey, Paul, you know, we're currently looking at around three inches of rain, mostly on Thursday. But really, it's going to be happening between Thursday uh, through Tuesday of next week with uh, just a slight intermittent, uh, 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 more cloudy day. So, you know, you really don't know what kind of weather is coming next in California. So we'll just have to wait and see if that three inches is real or not. We'll see what happens. But it's always so variable. But that's a good, that's a good solid rain, I would say. Yeah, that's, I think I'll be burning uh, debris after this rain. Well, has it always been this way in California? I mean, especially Northern California, where it just seems like we don't know what's going to be going on. Um, What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's really true. I mean, we're talking about weather, right? Uh, In geologic time, California landscapes have experienced everything under the sun. You can be sure of that. But California weather that's been experienced, say, within the lifetime of all of our listeners, that's changed a lot. That changes a lot also from one year to the next. California is has the most variable weather in all the 48 contiguous states, you know, all the, the lower 48. So uh, it's because of the atmospheric river storms. They raise havoc for us. We rely on at least two of these storms. They're periodic storms, and they, they provide us with our long-term water supplies. They provide us with the forests uh, maintaining their ecologic health, um, you know, the aquatic life, all, all of that. To uh, these days, to the uh, water agencies, they, they're looking at these extreme shifts and I'm sure it's feeling to them like it's sort of a weather whiplash right now. Wow, that's, a, that's an extreme uh, condition. Uh, but climate change has contributed to the extremes that we're having. I'm just kind of Assuming that it is, actually. No, you're, you're perceptive. That's right. Climate change has contributed in making an already high variability in weather that I mentioned earlier into a much more extreme high variability of weather. We're talking about, and you've heard this before, longer periods of warm, dry weather, but then it's sandwiched between much stronger and wetter atmospheric river storms that come in. Even the intensity of these storms, they're just magnifying. And so our agencies, those who protect us from floods, from, uh, you know, providing a water supply, they, they're having to adapt. 
That must mean that we need to address flooding potential and water supply limitations even more if it's going to be that erratic. Oh, absolutely. And to let's put an exclamation point on that um, and look at, at Yuba County. What are they doing in, in Yuba County? Well, Yuba Water, they're working with Scripps Institution of Oceanography Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes. That's down at UC San Diego. They're also working with California Department of Water Resources. They're working with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They're trying to come up with better ways of making informed forecasting decisions for the reservoir operations, okay, both the Yuba but also the Feather River watersheds. The research project, it's called FIRO, F-I-R-O, started back in 2019. And it's really the first in a lot of different ways. Number one, it focuses primarily on flood risk reduction. We talked about extremes, right? Remember a couple years back, we had some extreme weather come in. We don't want to uh, get damaged. We don't want people to die in these events, and we certainly don't want to have the properties damaged either. Uh, Investigating improvements uh, of an operation at two individual reservoirs. They're, They're trying to to make decisions at one reservoir that actually will also help another reservoir. They're, they're treating it all as one system, and that hasn't been done before. Uh, this year, there are a lot of things like that happening. I mean, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, they're talking about making changes that, that treat that as a system rather than two separate reservoirs. And then lastly, uh, these particular, the Yuba and the, Res- and the Feather River watersheds, they both experience rain and snow. Typically, that type of... Watershed is not included in a study like this, but hey, it's another first. So Bullard's Bar Dam, we all know that up here, they're going to really be benefiting by this work. A lower spillway is being looked at, and this spillway will be releasing water when there's enough channel capacity down below before some big atmospheric river storm comes rolling into the area. That way we will safeguard those down gradient. So these, these efforts, I mean, they incorporate moving science forward, need that. That's what they're doing through uh, Scripps and others. There's a new collaborative effort between groups that are happening now, and they're even rethinking existing policy. It, all of this stuff is changing at the same time. So, Paul, these are all very constructive improvements, and it's exactly what we need here in California. I'm curious, though. I'm, I'm wondering, and I would love to have some feedback from the NGOs in the Foothill area, what do you guys think of these ta- these types of changes? And do you like the direction that it's all going? I'd love to hear from you. Why don't you put that into a specific question, Steve, and we'll put it out there. Okay. What uh, Specifically, this FIRO, F-I-R-O project, how do you feel about that? How is it uh, viewing the safety of the ecological life up here in these watersheds? I'd like to know your opinion on that. Okay, Steve. Well, my goodness. Lots of lots of news, and uh, I'll see you in two weeks, and by then we will at least have the, the numbers for this rainstorm that's cruising through. <laughs> I will report what I hear to everyone on out there listening. There you go. Thank you, Steve. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker, and you can email him with your questions at water at operationunite.co. If you thought 2022 was an ugly year for the economy, Mark Cuniberti's opinion is that you ain't seen nothing yet. 
Mark runs down the widespread consequences of what he predicts will be a dire diesel fuel shortage in today's Money Matters commentary. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. With the price of gasoline skyrocketing to unthinkable heights in the last year or so, the next shoe to drop is the price of diesel fuel, or should I say the next shoe to rise. Not that diesel hasn't increased in price. It has. Today, the national average for a gallon of diesel is $5.29 a gallon. Last year, about this time, it was $3.64, but that could be just the beginning. Bad things are happening in the world of diesel as far as the supply goes, and that equates to to a possible increase in the price, and my guess is it's going to be a nasty one. There are many factors all coming together in the supply chain of diesel, and although you might not own a diesel car or truck yourself, you are nonetheless going to feel the pain. It might not necessarily be at the pump, but prices will likely rise at just about every store you go to. It is estimated that 95% of goods travel at some point by a boat, truck, or train powered by diesel fuel. The war in Ukraine has certainly been pinching supplies as Russia is a major exporter of diesel, and China will soon implement an export restriction on a variety of goods, diesel being one of them. Add in some shutdowns of diesel refineries both in the U.S. and Europe, and historical low inventories of the fuel worldwide, and it has all the makings of a severe inflationary spike in diesel over and above the bad inflation we are already seeing in other goods. Estimated costs to the U.S. consumer and the economy from spiking diesel prices exceed $100 billion. The actual cost, depending on how high prices go, remain to be seen. Transportation fuel is the most common use for diesel, which powers most trains, semi-trucks, and yes, some automobiles, all using it in lieu of gasoline. A ton of it is used for ocean freighters, often called the dirty fuel, as it is easier to refine than gasoline. It is most commonly used in large engines and power plants, which are the lifeblood of supply and power for almost everything we buy. Making matters worse is a threatened workers' strike deadline of December 9th from the railroad unions wanting improved health care and other compensation-type demands. If the railroad strike comes to fruition, estimated costs are an astounding $2 billion a day to the U.S. consumer every day the strike takes place. If you think supply lines are slow now, just wait and see what happens if the train stops running. Europe is preparing what it knows is coming, anticipating empty shelves due to shortages. They are prepping for a possible run on cash as people start to hoard both cash and goods. Many countries expect the same and are acting accordingly before supplies get critical. More alarming is the fact that diesel is also widely used as heating fuel, mostly along the eastern seaboard, but also warming homes and businesses in a variety of regions worldwide. Should a cold winter be in store, things could would get very ugly in many areas of the country and indeed the world. With supply chains already constrained to a variety of reasons from the war, the COVID shutdowns and a lack of available workers, a spike in the cost and the main fuel used for shipping will likely further stress retailers and consumers in obtaining goods in a timely manner. The result will be even higher prices and lack of availability on many items as shipping costs escalate. With the Federal Reserve trying to tame 
same inflation and consumers already feeling its effect on their pocketbooks, a spike in diesel will further add to the cost of just about everything we buy and thereby amplifying the inflation and the scarcity of goods we are already facing and in the process making the Fed's job of quelling inflation that much harder. I'm watching the market so you don't have to and that does it for today's Money Matters. The newscast expresses my opinion only and is not meant as investment advice nor does it represent the opinion of any bank, investment firm, nor this media outlet its staff members or underwriters. I hold a BA in economics with honors, 1979, and California insurance license, OL34249. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name is Mark Kuniberti. That's our newscast. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Hanson Brothers Enterprises since 1953, providing aggregates, construction services, equipment rentals, ready-mix concrete, masonry, and landscape products for public works, commercial, and residential projects. Located in Grass Valley and Colfax. GoHBE.com and Weiss Landscaping, with over 75 years of generational experience in landscape architecture design and installation. Weiss Landscaping crews are experienced and provide accountability on craftsmanship, installations, and irrigation projects. Go WeissLandscaping.com. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Please join us Wednesday for the next edition of the KVMR Evening News.